0: Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. I'm Eric Lothran of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website acquisitiontalk.com. Economists generally find agreement on the idea that national defense is a public good. In other words, private markets will not lead to an efficient provision of defense goods and services through the invisible hand mechanism alone. Governments must then provide for defense needs by administering internal budgets funded by the taxpayers. Yet, for many investments in weapon systems, the Department of Defense outsources production knowledge to private suppliers. These defense unique goods and services supplied by industry are priced at the estimated cost of production plus a small profit consideration. Two prominent methods for price determination in defense acquisition are will cost and should cost analyses. While the administrative role of paying production costs may appear to approximate the efficient outcomes of markets, it leads to an orderly competition that does not reflect the real functioning of markets. Moreover, the rule ignores non-monetary aspects of costs which have come to dominate under technological progress. Profit reflects the value generated over and above the next best alternative and rewards those who innovate or reduce costs. At its heart, neoclassical economics only provides a framework for understanding prices under static technology. As the economy moves away from reproducible goods and towards intangible assets like software, platform design, data, and institutional knowledge, competitive market outcomes will move further away from neoclassical idealizations of price equaling the objective cost of production. While accounting figures may provide a great deal of insight to a manager close to the operation who has deep technical understanding of the choices actually made, a manager like Admiral Hyman Rickover, accounting figures in themselves provide no context for planning future actions or holding organizations accountable. As intangible aspects of investments continue to grow, accounting figures reveal less about what really matters. As Admiral Hyman Rickover said, At one time, the pagan gods ruled the world. Later, the kings. Then the warriors, followed by the lawyers. Now it is cost accountants. Ultimately, some measure of common sense comes into play. Events tame them and relegate them to their proper place. In this episode of Program to Fail... We explore how accounting costs do not reveal the value being generated in the production process and cannot be used on their own as a guide to specific choices. Cost is not an objective reality, particularly to those who know the vagaries of cost accounting. Instead, our view of cost depends on subjective use value and is related to the term opportunity cost or the next best choice foregone. This chapter reveals that for defense acquisition to truly understand weapons value and leverage the power of commercial markets, it needs to shift away from its obsession with financial metrics. At 5'2 and 125 pounds, Hyman Rickover didn't fit the mold of a Navy ship commander. Failing to have achieved his dream of a submarine command by age 37, Rickover asked to be transferred to engineering duty only. He excelled in bringing order to various bases and was put in charge of the electrical division at the Bureau of Engineering just before the United States entered World War II. Shortly thereafter, Rickover visited the Oak Ridge facility and quickly realized the potential of nuclear power for the Navy. He started organizing a reactor demonstration on a submarine platform. Despite cancellation at the end of 1946, he continued to push the program until its reauthorization in 1951. Less than four years later, Rickover oversaw the launch of the first nuclear-powered submarine, the Nautilus. It provided a ready answer to the Soviet's display of space technology by transiting the North Pole while submerged in 1958. Until the end of the Nautilus, Rickover had largely limited his public voice to areas he felt competent, namely technical matters. All that changed after a 1954 commencement speech to the Naval Postgraduate School. Announcing the pivot, he recognized, quote, When one talks about how a job is done, he necessarily talks about people, and not about things, End quote. Rickover started to embrace the subjective nature of public politics as a means of achieving his objectives. Over the course of the 1950s, he began a courtship with Congress, not only to extend his commission, but to gather support for reform. First, he attacked the bureaucratic layering in the Pentagon, complaining to Congress how staff persons with no responsibility could kill or delay program decisions. Then he moved on to contractor relations. In 1963, he began pointing to excessive contractor profits and the importance of cost accounting. Rickover's interests extended into bureaucracy and accounting because they deeply affected his ability to accomplish work. In 1968, Rickover summarized for the Joint Economic Committee how he perennially pointed out serious problems leading to profiteering by the contractors. The deficiencies could only be resolved, he argued, with better insight into accounting figures. Quote, but my statements are like hammers with no anvil, since the department does not respond, End quote. He decided that only Congress could correct the accounting problems leading to excessive profits. In theory, certified cost or pricing data had been required on all non-competed contracts greater than $100,000 under the Truth in Negotiations Act, or TINA. In practice, Rickover found that contractors simply ignored the law, made possible by government agencies refusing to enforce it. Even at the government's expense, contractors refused to furnish accounting data. Rickover called TINA a dead letter. He accused the contractors of playing tricks with their accounting to maximize profits at the expense of an unwitting government. Counter to Rickover's arguments, the department's position was that contractor profits, if anything, were too low. The renegotiations board reported that average industry profits fell from 6% in 1956 to 3% in 1962. President of the Logistics Management Institute, Barry Shilito, said that industry profits as a percent of capital invested fell 35% over the past decade. The price-to-earnings ratio of defense firms were lower than that of commercial firms, indicating that investors were not optimistic about future profits in defense. In response to industry pressure, the DoD sought to increase profits on negotiated contracts by 25%. In Rickover's judgment, profits were already too high. He said that Shilito's report used unverified and unaudited information volunteered by defense contractors. A subsequent GAO audit of 146 defense contracts painted a different picture. The GAO found profit on sale 57% higher than Shilito's study and return on invested capital well over two times higher. From his vantage point at naval reactors, Rickover saw profit rates double on shipbuilding contracts in the two years after 1966. Suppliers of propulsion turbines regularly insisted on 20-25% to 25% profit rates, compared to just 10% a few years before. Yet Rickover claimed that no one really knew what industry profits were. He said, quote, Nobody in government knows what profits are being made by defense contractors. I don't know it. You don't know it. Congress doesn't know it, the Pentagon doesn't, only the contractors know it, end quote. Rickover claimed that the Defense Department was trying to increase profits without appreciating the nuances of accounting. In one case, Rickover had been contracting with a firm who was in turn procuring components, repair parts, and technical data. More than 90% of the cost went directly to subcontracts. Because the firm invested little capital itself, it had for several years been accepting profit on sales of 2.29% or less. It represented a sizable return on the capital invested in the contract. But the Armed Services Procurement Regulation allowed for a profit of 8-10%. to The Chief of Naval Material ordered Rickover to increase the prime's profit. Rickover explained the situation in a series of letters and moreover, he explained how the contractor had been seeing record sales from the government with little competition. The Navy staff, however, continued insisting on higher profit rates. Eventually, Rickover complied by increasing the profit by a nickel. He stood by the fact that the negotiation team arrived at the 2.29% profit rate using Asper 3-808, which specified the Weighted Profit Guidelines. The correspondences became known as the nickel letters. One questionable way contractors maximized profits was by subcontracting work to their own divisions, called intra-company transfers. In these cases, the same contractor could earn profits at the prime and subcontract levels. The profits earned by one division at the subcontract level came in as a material cost to the prime over at its division, as though they were any other parts supplier. The contractor earned a profit on top of profit. Rickover said how the extra profits will not be visible to the government, which only had insight at the prime level. Treatment of overhead was another area ripe for abuse. Rickover claimed that contractors unfairly spread the cost of commercial work onto government contracts. For example, contractors would charge the cost of supervisors bid and proposal, and other functions to an overhead pool that gets charged back to all contracts. However, for government work, most of those costs were charged directly to the contract and so did not contribute to the overhead pool. The government was then picking up the total cost of those functions for its own work, as well as a large portion of those costs for commercial work. Another area of attention was reimbursement claims due to the changes in government directions or contract loopholes. Rickover found that the government was inundated with claims which were detailed in legal wording but seldom supported by accounting records. Moreover, the cost to industry of preparing the claims was charged back to the government contracts as an overhead expense. It provided industry a tremendous advantage in manpower to go along with its asymmetric information. In one case, Rickover said the contractor submitted a $70 million claim on a $70 million contract. Many similar claims were routinely approved. All the tricks to maximize profitability at the government's expense were collectively written in a book by one of the developers of the Armed Services Procurement Regulation, Howard Wright. In a section titled 10 Ways to Maximize Profits, he explained a number of gaps, the use of the accelerated depreciation method, pricing capital and tooling costs directly to the contract, recovery of all disproportionate costs incurred various reimbursement strategies for unallowable costs, and more. Rickover wondered whether his testimony might inadvertently increase the sales of this nefarious book. For Rickover, industry profits couldn't be controlled by enforcing TINA requirements for certified cost or pricing data. The peculiarities of each contractor's accounting system made profit difficult to determine, even using furnished information. Normal methods gave accountants the freedom to allocate costs in almost any manner they choose. Consequently, Rickover claimed that, quote, actual profits can easily be hidden by the way overhead is charged, how component parts are priced, or how intra-company profits are handled. Companies are able to report as cost what is actually profit, end quote. Rickover highlighted a Forbes article that accused accountants of practices that are so loose that they could be used to conceal rather than reveal a company's true financial picture. The generally accepted accounting principles, or GAAP, became generally accepted as damned meaningless. He was also fond of quoting famed management expert Peter Drucker, who wrote how, quote, any accountant worth his salt can convert any profit figure into a loss figure or vice versa. If given control of accounting definitions, all unquestionably within the limits of proper accounting practices. As a result of the loose rules, the renegotiation board, which recouped excess profits from industry, could not effectively do its job. Without a standard for measuring cost and profit, the government had to send numerous auditors, contract officers, and technical people to the contractor facilities to reconstruct accounting records. Being severely understaffed for the task, most instances of excess profits went unnoticed. Rickover argued, quote, Neither the Truth in Negotiations Act nor the Renegotiation Act effectively protect the public against excessive costs and excessive profits. As you know, the real protection in this world comes not from people's good intentions, but from laws, end quote. The law Rickover asked from Congress was a set of cost accounting standards such that cost and pricing data could more readily be used to determine profits. With standards that persisted from contract proposal to cost accumulation and finally to outbound reports, government officers would have a consistent means for measuring contractor performance and profits. The information put them on an equal footing with industry. Government could understand the prices under negotiation in the same way as industry. Rickover claimed that the cost accounting standards could save the taxpayers $2 billion each year. He derived the figure from his past ability to negotiate prices down 5-10% to 10% when cost information was available. And if that could be applied to the government's $40 billion procurement program, then the savings amounted to at least $2 billion. Opponents found the figure incredible. The renegotiation board estimated total industry profits for negotiable contracts in 1969 at only $2.2 billion. Rickover responded that the board takes at face value what industry reports. Without standard accounting data, industry's real profits may well have been $4 billion or much higher without the board knowing it. Despite his rhetoric, Rickover's purpose was not to reduce profits per se, but to reduce overall cost by introducing standards and quality control into financial management. Over the past two decades, Rickover had impressed upon industry the need for such technical standards in engineering and production. Industry first responded that they could not work under the stringent specifications required by the nuclear navy, but Rickover was able to build a supply chain that could. Quality control and cost control tended to go hand in hand, as the Japanese would later learn to their competitive advantage. Rickover wanted to extend the concept of standards to cost accounting, no matter industry's bellyaching. Rickover explained, quote, industry usually over-dramatizes the difficulty of change, end quote. After five years of lobbying, Rickover finally had made inroads. On the 1st of July, 1968, Congress passed Public Law 9370, which, in part, directed the General Accounting Office to produce a report on the feasibility of uniform cost accounting standards. The report was scheduled for February 1969, but wasn't received until nearly a year later due to some hesitancy by Comptroller General Elmer Stotz. However, the evidence accumulating from the GAO audits turned out to be even more embarrassing than Rickover had told Congress. The GAO found instances of double-charging, where indirect workers charged time to overhead pools at the same time they were directly charging the government contract. The GAO finally found that cost accounting standards were feasible, but asked for another three or more years to develop the actual list to be implemented. Rick overgrew impatient. He told Congress that, quote, Since the time of Fabius the Concator the strategy of defeat by delay has a long history of success, end quote. When the GAO delegated responsibility for developing the cost accounting standards to an independent board, Rickover cried how one of the members was an industry accountant. He said that, quote, it will be like the Polish parliament of 200 years ago. One adverse vote will kill any measure, end quote. Rickover charged how the board would steer the standards towards the advantage of industry. Eventually, the Cost Accounting Standards Board came out with a list of 19 standards which addressed many of the loopholes over pointed to, particularly on the allocation of costs to individual orders. They also required disclosure statements, which would record any accounting assumptions upfront, so that the government can better audit costs and methods. Shortly after the standards rolled out, Congress let the renegotiation board expire in 1976, Rickover was bewildered. Now that cost accounting standards made TINA reports reveal profits more accurately, there was no process for recouping excess profits once discovered. Many of the accountants' initial opposition to the cost accounting standards stemmed from the vagueness of Rickover's proposal. Just a few years before, the government seemed to overreach on cost accounting by pushing particular systems under the banner of the Program Review and Evaluation Technique, or PERT. The PERT requirement not only mandated standards for accounting, but it mandated the particular cost objectives and allocation methods used by the firm. For example, the government wanted material costs to be charged to particular sub-assemblies only after it came out of inventory for use on the line. The detailed intrusion into business systems of the contractors led to large reimbursement claims and eventually reform. By 1967, PERT was replaced by standards for cost and performance systems called the Cost Schedule Control Systems Criteria. Still, the implementation proved long and trying. One standard, collecting cost by hardware end item in addition to functional department, continued to create problems. Contractors traditionally controlled cost by organization and object of payment, not by end items like actuators, switchboards, and so forth. The new system criteria, however, required both accounting methods. Hardware-oriented cost accounting required lower-level detail, resulting in an explosion in the number of accounts to be managed. In one case, the control system criteria forced a contractor to control 3,300 cost accounts, or points where budgets are compared to the actual costs incurred that cost information was further allocated to 21 million work packages. However, the benefits of the control system criteria was that it allowed contractors to allocate down from cost accounts to work packages. The old PERT method would have had the contractor actually account for and collect costs for and measure to budget to the 21 million work packages individually rather than the 3,300 cost accounts. Still, Thousands of cost accounts were far more than the firm's managers would have used to control operations. Oftentimes, firms kept a double set of books, one to control the firm, and the next to satisfy the government. The two books helped maintain the integrity of the financial accounting information from the complications and changes involved in managerial accounting. Many industry accountants initially feared that Rickover had asked for accounting rules on how to assign costs to all manner of hardware, down to cogs and widgets. Performing the task on high-dollar programs under cost-plus contracts was hard enough. Reorganizing the accounting system to perform functions on all contracts over 100000 was a far-fetched endeavor. Elmer Stotts interpreted Rickover different from early on. Stotts pushed for standards in the attribution of costs to particular contract orders, not necessarily hardware end items. In other words, Rather than assigning costs to a standard set of components that aggregated into weapon systems, Stotts focused the cost accounting standards on defining direct labor, appropriate overhead allocation methods, and the assignment of these costs to an entire contract order. This would better provide insight into contractor profit, but it would not necessarily illuminate the cost of systems, subsystems, and components to better estimate cost effectiveness or plan new systems. The shift was something accountants could live with more easily. Even with that understanding, Stotz still expressed two concerns before the National Association of Accountants. First, accountants had been working on the problem of comparability of accounting results for decades. Stotz told accountants, quote, of course, to all of us here, the challenges of applying uniform cost accounting standards is as clear as a lightning bolt, end quote. In 1932, for example. A committee of certified public accountants and representatives of the stock exchanges met to consider methods for attaining comparability of financial statements. They found overwhelming arguments against standards that may pigeonhole a diverse set of ever-changing company processes. A second concern was that Rickover's standards drove to a far lower level of insight than financial accounting. Stotts observed how this was the first time cost appeared in the proposal of legislation of accounting standards. Before that time, accounting standards had been regulated to ensure the accuracy of overall financial information, such as the income statements and balance sheets. Financial reports needed to be accurate to protect investors in public companies from fraud. Even at this higher level, accountants struggled to achieve consistency. Rickover's cost accounting standards entered the realm of managerial accounting, whereas financial accounting informed outsiders about investment decisions Managerial accounting informed insiders about decisions within the firm. It aided in product pricing, planning the manufacturing line, and measuring efficiency. So long as financial accounting standards were met, managerial accounting had always been the prerogative of the firm. Its information was strictly confidential. Accounting scholar Howard Wright disagreed with the deepening of accounting standards from the financial down to the managerial level. He said that the consistency advocated by the Comptroller-General would quote, "...embrace the entire accounting and reporting system, including that of cost accounting, would embrace all similar divisions of the company, and would extend often to infinity without change." End quote. New accounting methods could never be substituted for old ones if all contracts required consistency because there will always be overlap between contracts in execution. He called such rigidities unrealistic. While the cost accounting standard sought to improve government insight into contractor profit, it did not intend to illuminate the production costs of military end items. It therefore did not support the defense management framework envisioned by Charles Hitch, David Novak, and Robert McNamara, as well as others who supported the planning, programming, budgeting system. Cost information did not logically extend from the program orientation of the budget. Cost information at the level useful for a systems analysis was either scattered or non-existent. Management information systems like PERT and its successor criteria, the cost schedule control systems criteria, were separate from the cost accounting standards. Their reports had to be made a contractual requirement for each effort. Though the control systems criteria required hardware-oriented cost data, it fell short of providing an adequate basis for cost-estimating functions. For example, the contractors could define their own hardware work breakdown structures, or WBSs, particularly below the major subsystem level. It was difficult for OSD to enforce the military standard on the program officers, who preferred tailoring the WBS according to the contractor to suit their individual needs. The result made cost normalization across contracts nearly impossible. Two independent analysts could scarcely return the same results. Another major issue was that the control system criteria did not apply to fixed-price contracts. Because various contract types contributed to the total system acquisition, it often missed the full scope. For example, the government engineers may buy engines, radars, and other equipment separately and hand it over to the prime. As programs entered production, dominated by fixed-price contracts, control system criteria information vanished. It offered no basis for estimating how price changes with the quantity produced, as reflected in learning curves. Because production is the far larger slice of the pie in acquisition, small changes to the learning curve parameters can create huge swings in program cost outcomes. More fundamentally, the control system's criteria was a management and planning function rather than a cost estimating function. It did not provide three classes of accounting information necessary for cost estimators. First, a segregation of the total cost attributable to recurring expenditures of quantity production, such as touch labor, and non-recurring costs of development, such as design. Second, reporting on labor hours and component quantities, which serve as the basis for cost estimating relationships, including learning curves. And third, functional breakouts of activities. Costs and hours need to be identified by resource type, including engineering, manufacturing, subcontract, raw materials, and so forth. They also needed identification of direct costs and indirect cost allocations of overhead costs to the contract. The additional breakouts, as well as required use of a standard work breakdown structure, were partially implemented in 1966 and were later revised in October 24, 1973 with the Contractor Cost Data Report, or CCDR. The CCDR was essentially an itemized receipt provided at the cost of production with a line item for profit. With the information, analysts attempted to predict the cost of new program decisions using experience as the most realistic basis of future outcomes. One of the four reports required plant-wide costs to estimate future overhead rates. Receiving cost information from all contractors in a standard work breakdown structure may even improve the government's position during negotiations because it could compare across contractors. Applying statistical techniques to the incoming data, government analysts could control for system characteristics and predict future costs based not on opinion or judgment, but on quantitative evidence. The CCDR came to be applied on major defense acquisition contracts as a result of one particularly convincing case study. On December 2, 1971, Deputy Secretary of Defense David Packard received a briefing that compared the cost estimates of the Navy's new F-14 Swing Wing Fighter aircraft. It showed the cost per pound of airframe, the assumed cost driver, as estimated by two sources. The prime contractor, Grumman, provided the first, presumably building up to the total price based on engineering plans. Government cost estimators provide the second using a parametric, or will cost, technique based on statistical analysis of historical data. The chart showed how Grumman's 1969 contract proposal costs ranging between one quarter and one third of the cost estimated by the government depending on the quantity of aircraft produced. Less than two years later, Grumman's estimate had grown so much as to reach the government's will cost estimate almost exactly. Packard was keenly aware that the F-14 program would have looked very different had decision makers believed the will cost estimate. He issued a memorandum five days later demanding an independent parametric estimate be performed for each major weapons system at program milestones. It proved one of Packard's last efforts in government. He left office December 13, 1971. Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird carried forward Packard's cost estimating initiative. In the next month of January 1972, Laird established the OSD Cost Analysis Improvement Group, or CAG. Fittingly, he placed it under the control of the Program Analysis and Evaluation Function, the successor to ASD Systems Analysis. The KEG performed independent cost estimates in support of DSARC milestone reviews. In order to perform its duties, Laird authorized it to collect the cost data it required. The CCDR, however, ran into accounting consistency problems that remain unresolved by the Cost Accounting Standards Board, which focused on assigning costs to contract orders. The CCDR needed stricter standardization, including cost assignment to a standard hierarchy of systems, subsystems, and components described by MIL-Standard 881 work breakdown structure. Yet this was precisely the kind of cost standards that accountants initially fought against so vehemently. When the contractor's natural structure did not align with the work breakdown structure elements planned by the government in the CCDR, the contractor would allocate even direct costs to the report using assumptions which differed from person to person and from time to time. As a result, the CCDR was difficult to interpret without normalizing for peculiarities of the contractor's accounting system. The cost accounting standards did not help in the matter. Even if a system's cost could be revealed objectively, there were more problems to overcome. Historical costs, for one, may not be predictive of future systems' costs. Ronald Coase argued that, quote, Business decisions depend on estimates of the future. Accounting records cannot therefore be used as a guide to future action without considering how far the conditions which have existed in the past will continue into the future, end quote. The statistical problem makes historical cost data inappropriate for predicting future outcomes in an uncertain and nonlinear environment. Suppose, for example, there existed cost and effectiveness data for subsonic aircraft. One variable affecting aircraft cost is its speed. Models often assume a linear or log linear relationship between cost and aircraft speed, holding other important variables constant. However, when predicting the cost of the first aircraft that can operate in transonic speeds, the model would neglect the new difficulties presented by shockwaves. After a certain point, small speed increases generate outsized stresses on the airframe. The effect of these physical realities are not apparent in the historical data. The solution arose in England in an empirical manner after diverse testing. It turned out that the elevators in the aircraft's tail had to be removed and the entire horizontal stabilizer would be movable instead. The example demonstrates that even so called straight line extrapolations encounter unexpected nonlinearities, which in nature are the rule and not the exception. Innovation is by definition an endeavor to attain parameter values outside the range captured by the historical data. Problems take on new characteristics. Solutions tend to require new ways of doing things instead of getting more efficiency out of the old ways. Parallel efforts, which allow for experiments and data, are in some ways necessary to useful statistics. The larger and more flexible systems being acquired, the fewer and less relevant are the statistical data. In the 1950s, four times as many aircraft were prototyped than the next 40 years combined. Yet even with consciously generated experiments, statistical techniques often rely on unrealistic assumptions. Assuming away statistical difficulties, as well as difficulties of cost accounting, will cost estimates may still lead to another problem. The analysis takes as sacrosanct existing cost figures which may perpetuate gross inefficiencies or neglect new opportunities. For example, the F-111 was one of the only tactical aircraft developed in the 1960s. It also provided some of the only data to analysts working on the next generation of swing-wing fighters. Yet the F-111 proved a boondoggle and thus biased the data towards higher costs. As Ernest Fitzgerald testified to Congress, quote, "Overdependence on the probable cost estimating techniques has had a bad effect in other areas. To begin with." Since the techniques do not recognize inefficiencies in the bases for projections, the approach tends to build excess costs into future estimates. For example, the cost estimates for the new generation of fighter aircraft, the F-14 and the F-15, are heavily influenced by the cost experience on the F-111, which is highly suspect, to say the least. End quote. Indeed, systems experiencing the worst performance often have the best collected, organized, and analyzed data because of additional scrutiny from OSD and Congress. Further target costs based on these precedents will then have high costs baked into them. Anything other than large underruns to target costs so derived actually signal escalating prices and continuing deterioration of performance. When past performance influences current standards, the system can enter a reinforcing feedback loop and drift into deteriorating performance. The process is further reinforced when decision makers tend to believe bad news more than good news, and a more realistic cost estimate is, in their minds, a higher one. As Burton Klein observed, While lower-echelon organizations sometimes underestimate the cost of program changes, My observations indicate that upper echelons almost invariably overestimate them. Often, the cost of making any changes in a particular configuration are made to seem astronomical even before a single piece of metal has been bent. One test of performance is whether the cost escalation of defense goods has been growing faster than consumer prices in the economy at large, represented by the inflation rate. Higher rates of relative price growth in a sector tend to indicate stagnating or declining productivity. Rickover said in 1968 that the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that wholesale prices grew about 15% over the course of a decade, while military equipment went up 30, 40, 50%, and more in just the past two or three years. The GAO could not find indexes tracking the prices of military goods all they could find was research on changes in the hourly earnings of defense labor and material prices. Yet the prices of inputs to the production process do not reveal the price trends of defense outputs, such as aircraft, radars, ships, and so forth. Rickover claimed that the high cost in defense goods were not due to high input prices, such as wage rates, but inefficiency. He said, The Japanese, who have to import iron ore, can build a large tanker for less than the material costs in America alone, end quote. The will cost analysis of historical data could not solve the problem of rapidly escalating prices due to inherent inefficiencies. Admiral Rickover was not the only man in the Navy disputing contractor costs to get the lowest possible price. Gordon Rule, the Navy's Director of Procurement Control and Clearance, also thought that contractors were charging too much. Both Admiral Rickover and Mr. Rule firmly believed in the market system, but both held the view that price competition could not be trusted in defense procurement for efficient outcomes. Rickover charged that contract labor could easily be found standing around. When they did work, it was of poor quality. Despite all the inefficiencies, the companies earned high profits. Mr. Rule felt similarly. He scrutinized shipbuilding claims so closely that he generated a service wide backlog of 1 billion in 1971, a situation earning him few friends in the Navy. While Rickover wanted to nationalize the shipyards so that he could personally oversee the contractors' operations, Mr. Rule took a different route. Instead of having contractors work in government facilities, Mr. Rule sent a team of consultants to the contractor facilities to review operations and make cost-cutting recommendations. The very first should-cost review in 1967 targeted Pratt & Whitney's TF-30 engine for the struggling F-111 aircraft. The result was a $100 million reduction in the Navy's engine contract. Though Congress was ecstatic about the prospect of more should-cost reviews, industry complained about how the Pentagon had no business directing their management. Firing back in a letter that Robert McNamara said was the best he'd ever read, Mr. Rule wrote that the government would not spend taxpayer money for excess overhead, substandard labor, abnormal spoilage and rework, poor estimating, and poor subcontracting. Mr. Rule believed that by applying the proper application of rational management, such as through third-party reviews of operations, contractors could be made effective despite the lack of competition. Advocates of the should-cost approach, drawing heavily from existing best practices in industry, intended to alleviate the fear of a cost disease problem that may result from parametric will-cost analyses. The should-cost approach sought to challenge historical data for inefficiencies using a mix of methods from industrial engineering and cost auditing. The Army's Should Cost Guide stated that the difference with will cost is quote, the depth of the analysis and the extent to which the government challenges inefficiencies in the contractor's operations, end quote. Should cost requires teams of consultants to reside in the contractor's plants for weeks or months at a time. Ten points generally addressed in a should cost study include one, plant layout, two, labor standards, three, material control, 4. Machine loading and utilization, 5. Production scheduling, 6. Make or buy practices, 7. Subcontracting procedures, 8. Quality control procedures, 9. Indirect cost controls and allocations, and 10. Accounting and cost estimating procedures. Despite its promises, the should-cost analysis performed by the Navy did not save its F-111B aircraft. The Navy dropped out of the program for many reasons unsolved by the should-cost study, leaving the Air Force alone in its procurement of the F-111. The should-cost approach, it turned out, could only solve a limited range of issues. For example, previous decisions in research and development had a major impact on the producibility of the TF-30 engine and the F-111B aircraft system more generally. The limitation of should-cost was quickly recognized by its fathers in the Navy, which conducted only three should-cost studies between 1973 and 1979, while the Army performed 89 such studies and the Air Force 37. Congressmen wished to understand why such a promising tool as should-cost was being neglected by the Navy. Frank Sanders, Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Installations and Logistics, testified on the subject in December 1969. Quote, The major should cost philosophy is basically that DOD should not endorse contract inefficiency by paying excess costs. This philosophy is fully stated in the Armed Services Procurement Regulation, in our pricing policy and practice. In part, at least, it is being continually implemented. The big question is how to fully implement it in a practical manner. As Mr. Rule has discussed, and I must agree with him, that consideration should be confined to procurement areas of sole source. He and I are in agreement that it is impossible to realistically apply the techniques used in Pratt & Whitney's should-cost approach to research and development. Sanders pointed out that should-cost approach was only usable in high-rate manufacturing where routine operations could be benchmarked against industry best practices. Navy leadership believed that existing regulations already required should-cost duties as a matter of course. However, they did not see should-cost as practical for evaluating research and development. How could a third party be expected to evaluate the production process of new ideas and new technologies which are nuanced and specialized? Disagreements cannot be resolved by reference to a source of demonstrated knowledge, leading to stalemated arguments. For example, one army should-cost analysis reached an impasse after 44 failed negotiation sessions. Ultimately, both should-cost and will-cost analyses were accepted as complementary. Elmer Stott shared concerns about building in higher costs using will costs, but believed that should cost is most useful in conjunction with estimation based on historical costs. Donald Rice agreed and provided a roadmap for their use. In the early planning stages, when information on technical details are scarce, the parametric will cost approach is most useful. At a later acquisition stage, when contractor proposals are prepared and enough information becomes available to use the industrial engineering cost estimating approach, it is useful to use should costs. It is important to note, Rice wrote in a widely circulated memo, quote, that such parametric estimates are not recommended for program control purposes, but rather as a means of providing service and OSD management with the most probable resource impact of alternative programming decisions, end quote. As the single buyer for defense goods, the government was able to compel contractors to accept regulations unlike anything in the private markets. Ultimately, government officials wanted to use their market power to pay the marginal cost of production under efficient conditions with a fair criteria for profit. Will cost and should cost analyses sprang up in response to these needs. But even with regulations like the cost accounting standards, the cost schedule control system criteria, and the contractor cost data report, it still proved extremely difficult to determine what the incurred costs on a military item actually were, let alone what they ought to be. By the early 1970s, the ideal of measuring costs had been pursued for well over a century. When railroad companies became the biggest enterprises ever created in the mid-19th century, they started to replace the market system of small entrepreneurs with an organizational hierarchy. As a result, they lost pricing information of activities under the span of their control. In markets, rivalrous bidding surfaces the prices of various inputs into the production process. There was no equivalent process within a firm. In order to measure internal prices, firms invented new cost accounting procedures to better relate inputs to outputs. Railroad companies measured the cost per ton mile, among other metrics, for various cross-sections of the firm. The information helped railroad executives control costs and evaluate the performance of a new class of middle managers. As managerial accounting progressed into the last decades of the 19th century, It began to support the development of scientific management. Frederick Winslow Taylor was one of the leading advocates of the movement to put management on a rational basis. He sought to improve the efficiency of labor and materials by creating standards, such as labor hours per unit and material quantities per unit. When combined with the allocation of overhead costs, the information could be used for product pricing. This allowed managers to estimate the minimum at which new work could be taken on, depending on fluctuating demand and input prices. Managerial accounting reached a mature state with the rise of diversified corporations. Before the DuPont Company in 1903, organizations engaged in a single type of operation. Diversified firms experienced a new problem of multiple operating groups pursuing different ends. Decision makers needed cost information to allocate capital among competing activities. By 1925, virtually all managerial accounting practices being used 50 years later had already existed. Neoclassical economics provided a theoretical framework to guide scientific management. One of the main economic results is that a firm's profit-maximizing rule is to continue expanding output until the point where the revenue from the next sale is equal to the cost of that sale. Stated differently, a firm maximizes profit on a particular good or service when the marginal cost equals marginal revenue. This rule is the same for so-called perfectly competitive and monopolistic conditions. Yet for economic theory to become operable, firms had to be able to determine the marginal cost of output, not to mention the elasticity of consumer demand. In theory, marginal costs were measurable. In practice, however, it turned out to be very difficult. Even the best-managed firms did not track direct costs to each and every class of output, let alone each unit of output. More often, the firm ran a study to determine the baseline cost per unit, or a standard cost, and then compared this baseline to aggregate flows of costs and units over an accounting period. The standard costs also formed the basis of pricing proposals, but more often reflected average rather than marginal costs. When accountants provided estimates of marginal costs as the basis for pricing, more often than not, it proved perilously low. Scientific management could not deliver on its promises. Marginal costs proved a slippery concept. When investigating the cost accounting standards in the early phases, Elmer Stotz brought on Robert Anthony, an accounting scholar and former ASD comptroller. Anthony was pleased that the standards did not address the cost of hardware end items. To hint at the difficulties of deriving costs for even a simple product, Anthony wrote how it took seven years of industry studies to establish the standard cost of a 2x4 of lumber. He concluded that the product's cost to be an abstract concept. Anthony illustrated, quote, Suppose the president of a widget company says, Last year our cost information shows that manufacturing widgets was $1.80 each. The ordinary person might think he has learned a concrete piece of information from this statement. Anyone who understands the vagaries of cost accounting knows differently. He knows that cost, in this context, has no generally accepted meaning. To Robert Anthony, the concept of cost has a large, subjective component. The reality did not go completely unnoticed by economists. Even though economist James Buchanan received the Nobel Prize for his work in public choice theory, He regarded his 1969 book, Cost and Choice, to be his most important contribution. It explained the limits of what accounting information can convey about what is important. Buchanan argued that neoclassical economists viewed cost as a measurable quantity of dollars and that relative input costs of two goods determines the exchange value. Indeed, this was the underlying assumption of contract pricing in defense. However, for Buchanan, costs only existed in the mind of the decision maker and at the time of choice. It is based on anticipations of future values of alternative courses of action. As such, costs facing one person could never be measured by another. They were tied to a subjective choice and not resulting from money outlays. The will cost and should cost analyses represent the monopsonist tools for determining prices in lieu of those which arise from competitive exchange between buyers and sellers. Yet the analyses rely on an objective view of value. The view attaches dollar outlays to factor resources, such as labor and materials, which carry those dollars through the stages of production and ultimately define the end item's cost. Production costs, under the objective view, explains the value of a good or service and is the basis for price determination in defense acquisition. The rivalrous competition that drives markets, however, is based on divergent expectations of the participants. The suppliers see the same factor resources, labor and material, but disagree on what choices should be made in their combination, and therefore disagree on the true cost of the factors." If a unit of labor can produce more value in one process relative to another, then the decision maker's view of cost depends on the decisions he makes. Lionel Robbins wrote that, quote, The process of valuation is essentially a process of choice, and costs are the negative aspects of this process, end quote. Whether the supplier made good choices resulting from their evaluation of factor prices is determined after the fact by the buyers. In the subjective view, costs are uniquely determined by each decision maker and are only relevant at the time of the decision. Though the objective view dominates business practices in defense, the subjective view of costs has been accepted in economic theory since the marginalist revolution. The cost of producing one good is irrelevant to the buyer. Art is one obvious example, but consider a slide rule. Once the price of the digital calculators came down enough, the price most people would pay for a slide rule basically went to zero, even though the cost of production did not. The price of a good or service is a cost to the buyer, and the cost consists of the buyer's own valuation of foregone alternatives. Though a cost is dated at the time of commitment, its downstream benefits may change along with the technology, tastes, and information. SGF Thirlby explained, quote, The act of discovering cost, which really means discovering which of the considered alternatives is to be rejected, inevitably involves valuation. This valuation necessarily involves estimates of happenings in the future about which the decision maker can never be certain. The decision is based on ex-ante reasoning or advanced calculations, which involve looking into the future and consequently must, even for this reason, be matters of opinion." In the evaluation of alternative courses of action, the next best option represents what economists call the opportunity cost. The idea was clearly understood by Harvey Sapolsky in his classic book, The Fleet Ballistic Missile Program. Quote, calculating the dollar cost of the fleet ballistic missile system does not reveal its true price to determine that the opportunity cost involved in its creating of the system must be considered. The $10 billion allocated to Polaris had many alternative uses, all of which had to be sacrificed with the decision to move ahead with the system." Quote. The fleet ballistic missile not only drew away dollars from Navy operations and maintenance, as well as other missile developments, it sucked up the best talent from Navy programs and could perhaps be the reason for some failures. Yet the fleet ballistic missile program appeared worth the opportunity cost because the Navy and the nation place overwhelming value on developing an invulnerable nuclear platform. Such imperatives of force structure are rarely so clear to the defense decision maker. Dollar outlays, while objectively measurable, are not necessarily indicative of opportunity costs. Two different designs costing the same money may return starkly different performance depending on the ingenuity of the designers. Under uncertainty, input costs tell the observer nothing about the value being generated. An observer would have to know about the specific details of the choices made along the way to judge whether the outlays were worth it. On the other hand, when there is little uncertainty about the methods to be used, there is often a tight correspondence between costs and value. It is only when all relevant factor and product values are assumed to be known that there is no doubt about the production decisions to be taken. The concept of cost under the assumption of perfect information is fundamentally a problem of scarcity. It contains no element of uncertainty. For repetitive production associated with the industrial era, the amount of non-monetary aspects related to costs is relatively small. The output is generally of a known specification with an existing market price. It is mostly tangible, the bulk of its value coming from raw materials, machining, assembly, and distribution. If the product failed, much of the investment could be recovered in capital stock and intermediate goods. In short, there was less uncertainty. Though tracking physical resource costs may explain long-run prices under static, technical conditions, the most important aspects of weapons acquisition and the modern economy have nothing to do with repetitive production. Costing problems are compounded when considering new ideas and non-reproducible production. For example, software is a product whose marginal cost of reproduction is zero. Software companies do not own physical assets in the same way steel manufacturers do. They own intellectual property and a company culture that is embodied in lines of code, reputation, and the potential for great ideas. Much of their value is intangible. The price of software products cannot be explained by costing activities related to tangible assets. With reproducible goods, increasing output requires additional units of labor and capital. With intangible assets, on the other hand, there is a low or zero marginal cost to producing the next unit. A combat vehicle design can be shared around the world almost for free, and the software systems can be replicated onto the next machine at the push of a button. All of this value of intangible assets is in the engineering and creativity that went into it. In other words, almost all of the money outlays are fixed and upfront, while the marginal cost of reproduction is zero. As software developer Frederick Brooks realized in 1975, the management systems used in the Department of Defense were ill-equipped, if not dangerous, when investing in intangible assets. The genius of the industrial era manufacturing was its use of interchangeable units of labor and capital. Introducing new workers to expand output required little in terms of training or coordination. Managers could specialize employee functions to a routine, requiring little oversight and only brief, linear communication between them. Brooks, however, realized that adding units of labor and capital to software development did not increase output. He pointed to the presence of uncertainty and communication. First, uncertainty affects software development, like all research and development, because it explores new concepts. Development projects do not deploy labor and capital in routine ways. Second, each software task is largely inseparable from the whole project. Each worker must communicate with a far larger number of colleagues and must be familiar with a far larger set of technologies, goals, and strategies. Brooks concluded, quote, "'Cost does indeed vary as the product of the number of men and the number of months. Progress does not. Hence, the man-month, as a unit for measuring the size of a job, is a dangerous and deceptive myth.'" It implies that men and months are interchangeable. End quote. Investment in intangible assets may create economic value unrelated to money outlays and costing methodologies. Examples of intangible assets include computerized information, software and databases, innovative property, such as research and development, patents, copyrights, product designs, and trademarks and economic competencies, such as training, branding, business processes, supply chains, and company culture. Intangible investments require real dollar outlays, but their precise contribution to sources of revenue is unclear. As innovation has taken preeminence over repetitive production, the importance of intangibles has only increased. Accounting scholars Baruch Lev and Feng Gu found that the value of tangible assets and earnings explained about 85% of company value when entering the stock market from 1950 to 1959. The figure fell to about 55% over the period of 1970-79, and between 2000 and 2013, the figure plummeted to 30%, reaching just 13% by 2017. Costs related to tangible assets no longer adequately describe the value being generated by firms. The value of a weapon system is not in bending metal or laying wires, even if that's where most of the money may go. The value is in product design. R&D decisions tightly constrain almost all subsequent decisions in production and sustainment. The design determines production methods and costs. The design determines reliability, maintainability, affordability, and other important aspects. Managers are often told to focus where the dollars go. But even though 10% of money costs go to weapon systems research and development, decisions made in that phase contribute to something more like 90% of the total opportunity costs. Weapon systems value is derived from intangibles. However, in the phase where decisions matter most, R&D, the Department of Defense continues to manage itself by industrial era techniques. Ronald Coase already understood the effects of intangibles in 1938, writing how, quote, costs and receipts, cannot be expressed unambiguously in money terms, since courses of action may have advantages and disadvantages which are not monetary in character, because of the existence of uncertainty, and also the difference between the point in time which payments are made and receipts obtained. For example, when producing software, as when producing any new idea, the ultimate product and its value to potential buyers is still an imagining of the innovator yet he must make cost decisions before the results of those decisions can be known and cannot liquidate the investment as though it were plant or intermediate good. Intangible investments tend to be sunk investments, irredeemable in their pieces, but through synergies, spillovers, and scalability, the future value of combined investment can be quite substantial. The choice to take on a cost only makes sense in relation to the value being generated down the line from that cost. When the potential value is uncertain, it cannot yet be said whether the dollar outlays were worth the cost or not. In the objective view, the end product's value is determined by historical costs of factor inputs. In the subjective view, the factor input prices are derived from evaluations placed on the future value of the final product. The marginal costing rule followed by government officials attempts to approximate the outcome of a perfectly competitive market. Such idealized markets, however, have no such rule in which firms seek to price their output at marginal cost. It is an outcome of interactions between various buyers and sellers. The final check on supplier efficiency is bankruptcy, not the marginal cost price calculation. Yet in defense acquisition, as in market socialism, price outputs at marginal cost is a rule to be followed. The rule presents a problem for determining performance. Jack Wiseman pointed out, If no rule other than the marginal cost rule is used, is there any check on efficiency or the distribution of resources between uses? He answered that there may be a check upon reasonableness of estimates when the alternatives considered relate to the production of known things by known methods. However, Wiseman had a different answer under uncertainty and intangible investments. The imponderables and with them the difficulty of a direct check on efficiency, become the greater the more unique or novel are the matters with which decisions are concerned. All decisions about new and major investments of resources seem likely to involve important imponderables of this kind. It appears that those decisions likely to be most important to efficiency will be those upon which no adequate check can be made with the rule now interpreted. There seems little possibility of direct check upon whether the marginal cost rule has been obeyed end quote." The only check on efficiency then becomes the comparison of budgeted outlays with realized outlays, assuming away judgments about the value of foregone alternatives. In other words, the only efficiency check on marginal cost rule is a check on the manager’s ability to forecast. The explanation accounts for DoD’s obsession with program and contract cost growth figures. Such figures, however, can only provide a partial check not only because an initial cost estimate may be biased by institutional factors, but because cost growth cannot explain whether that program plan should have been chosen at all. When the plan is that of the central authority, the problems are compounded because the ability to correct errors depends on the ability of the manager to convince the central authority that an error has indeed occurred in relation to the larger plan. Wiseman concluded that, "...any restriction on the field of choice of the manager is a curb on efficiency." In the Department of Defense, the centrally planned program budget restricts the decision-making of local managers. If the manager carries out the program plan decided by the consensus-building bureaucracy, then he has executed standing orders. He has made no decision of consequence. The manager cannot be said to have incurred any costs himself, no matter how many times dollars were converted into goods by purchase or hire. A program budget provides the forum for consensus-building bureaucracies to decide before the fact matters of cost, schedule, and technical or performance attributes, highly restricting the manager's ability to consider alternatives. Program funding then gets locked into narrow ranges of choice, meaning that the opportunity cost of alternative actions is quite low, regardless of the actual dollars paid. Managers see money as cheap. Samuel Huntington observed that the manager, quote, if forced to choose, normally prefers fewer resources and greater freedom to allocate them as he sees fit than more resources less subject to his control. End quote. When program control is restricted, the manager is more likely to expend effort to increase his top line budget at the expense of other managers rather than seeking better contractors or projects for the money he has available. A subjective view finds that people's actions shape the structure of the market, which in turn constrains the actions of market participants. In other words, it takes a complex adaptive systems view and an exchange-oriented approach. People face genuine choices, the consequences of which cannot be fully calculated beforehand. In fact, the chooser's perception of value is generated in the choosing process, not separately from the process. The potential participants do not know until they enter the process what their choices will be. The Department of Defense, by contrast, attempts to spread objective cost information under the expectation that managers will be able to fully consider the alternatives and develop the optimal project plan before many technical issues are resolved. The Opportunity Cost of Alternative Actions is a valuation process that requires experience with production and people in addition to experience with money calculations. Leadership must put the development of people first, who can then build the deep expertise required to make winning value judgments in a highly competitive and innovative environment. The rise of intangibles has made large group coordination, which was linear and routine in the industrial era, much more difficult. As a result, a focus on training and culture becomes primary to the rigid systems for justifying and improving programs. As John Boyd often said, it's, quote, people, ideas, and hardware in that order, end quote. Decades later, after recognizing the changes brought on by intangibles, famed tech entrepreneur Ben Horowitz wrote that, quote, we take care of the people, the product, and the profits in that order, end quote. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail. The Rise of Central Planning and Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.